Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week we're revisiting a 2015 event featuring Northern Irish illustrator and author Oliver Jeffers. Good evening and you're very welcome to the International Literature Festival Dublin, which is supported by the Arts Council. I know you're all jealous of me. Um, I'm Margaret Ann Suggs. I'm the former head of illustration at Ballyfermot College, and I'm a proud member of Illustrators Ireland. I am also the mother of two of the best-looking little boys in Ireland who, <laughs> who have gone from catching stars to great paper capers with the defining picture bookmaker of the decade because Oliver Jeffers are far and away the most requested picture books at my house. Just this morning, Oliver was awarded not only the Children's Books Ireland Book of the Year, but from even harsher critics, he was awarded the Children's Choice Award. I know. Um, Picture books are an alluring platform for storytelling. And as Oliver is going to talk to you about, words make up only part of the story, and pictures make up only part of the story. But when the two are woven together is when the story truly becomes whole. Um, Oliver Jeffers is, among many things, a filmmaker, a painter, a storyteller, an illustrator, and a picture book maker. He prefers the term picture book because the label kids book might alienate a non-kid. And labeling things is pretty important to Oliver. For his talent at storytelling, he often credits Belfast, where he grew up. It's a city steeped in a tradition of storytelling, and this is also where he learned his craft, illustrating. He uses traditional media, pencils, colored pencils, acrylics, collage, inks, in very non-traditional ways. His publications range from The Incredible Book-Eating Boy, where the book is actually bitten, and six plus two equals elephant, to most recently the award-winning Once Upon an Alphabet, where chronology and linear storytelling are challenged and elephants are enclosed in envelopes by a nun. His stunning work is littered with little globes and maps. It's peppered with his distinctive hand lettering. Uh, His stories are sometimes dark, sometimes nothing is sacred, and sometimes everything can be laughed at but they are without fail beautifully innocent, delicately frank, and poignant. On behalf of Dublin City Council, the International Literature Festival Dublin, and the squeeing fangirl inside of me, I am absolutely delighted to introduce you to Mr. Oliver Jeffers. Hello. Hola. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be in Dublin, frankly. Uh, I nearly wasn't. So I've had a fear of sinkholes for a while, and I was sitting at an airport this morning, and all the flights were cancelled because a sinkhole opened up in the middle of the runway. I think my fear is justified now. It's the second sinkhole that's almost got me. There was one right outside my apartment that was seriously about 30 feet wide by about 12 feet deep that just appeared. And then they filled it in, and then it 
appeared again, and then they filled it in, and it appeared a third time. They're like, oh, all right, what's, what's going on here? And only at that point did somebody think to go underground from another angle and see what was happening. There's a subway line that goes underneath, and it was just filling into the subway line. Anyway, okay, so yes, I'm, I'm glad to be here at Dublin. That was a very thorough introduction, um, so I, I don't think I, there's a whole lot more I need to say, really. Well, no, there's a few things, okay, and this pretty much sums up everything. Oh, I'm Oliver Jeffers. This is my job. I draw pictures and tell stories. I use all different sorts of stuff to make my pictures, whatever really is the best way to tell that story. I have all these stories in my head, and I have to get them out in the world. So I will tell stories to anyone who's listening. Once upon a time. I get my ideas from everywhere, which is why I always carry a pencil and a piece of paper. It can get pretty rough sometimes. So thanks very much, everybody. I'm glad you came along. Okay. What's that? Sorry? More? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, I should probably talk about some more stuff. This is technically now my encore. Um, I'll, I'll tell you more things like this is what I look like. I did take a guess what the podium will be, and I guessed correct. So this is what I look like. And that is often very disappointing to people because of the pictures at the back of my books. Uh, people kind of assume that I <laughs> look like that. Um, I think that I look like this, because this is a drawing I made of myself, a self-portrait. I have always loved drawing, and I make a living from drawing pictures, from various things, but including drawing pictures and, and telling stories, and stories about all different kinds of things, and not a lot of people know that they are all true stories. So this is my story. For those of you who don't know it, once upon a time, on a place called Earth, which is right around there, and there's the sun to give you some context, and then all of the other planets. Um, once upon a time, on a place called Earth, there was me. I was born in the 1970s to my mom and dad, uh, and I grew up in Belfast. And uh, just in case you don't know where Belfast is, it's right around there. Uh, here's a close-up view. Oh, sorry, wrong way. Here is a close-up view. And I grew up with a wonderful family that taught me many important things, uh, many important life lessons. Um, and they taught me you know, how to be a good human being and all the things that it takes to, to be a good human being and, and what are, what, what's important in life, like eat a responsible breakfast. A responsible breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. They also taught me things like how to talk to animals. Um, but I never really did quite get the knack for that one. Uh, and uh, I was also taught that unrequited love is inevitable. So at the age of nine, I figured out that TV did not love me back. Uh, I was also taught that you'll never know what you find when you go exploring. You know, all those sorts of usual things. But um, most importantly, they taught me about storytelling. I grew up surrounded by storytellers. And my family told stories all the time. And so just, let's see. Here's a story that uh, my brother tells, my younger brother Brian. Uh, my grandparents are, uh, they, they, on their 60th wedding anniversary, 60th wedding anniversary, they got all of the family together. So there was eight children, eight of their children, 
23 grandchildren and 18 great-grandsons, one great-granddaughter. Everybody was in their back garden, all milling around, and they decided that the, the older brother wanted to get a, a photograph taken, and so the, their oldest son, uh, the older brother of my mom's siblings, so they're like, right, let's get a photograph taken. And at that point, my younger brother went inside to the kitchen to go to the bathroom, and there was my granny and granda sitting the sink looking out at the back garden, and they didn't notice Brian going in, and, and uh, he overheard my granda say, dear God, Kathleen, look what we've created. <laughs> That's what you get for not having a television. <laughs> so, through the years, I learned that there was an art to storytelling. Um, for example, timing is everything. Also, that all good stories have three important things, and they're, they're, it's three important, very simple things, and they're so simple that people often forget them. That's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Simple. And I was also taught another very valuable lesson in my household uh, about stories, which is never let the truth get in the way of a good story. That was sort of the motto in my house growing up. But uh, finally, I was encouraged to be curious. Um, It was the driving force behind everything that I was doing when I was figuring out that I wanted to be an artist. And, uh, you know, I was just raised that way. That's my dad. And in addition to being exposed to all these wonderful lessons, I used to spend a lot of my childhood drawing. I always knew I wanted to be an artist when I grew up. Hands up here who wants to be an artist when they grow up. Okay, a few people. I mean, you just know sometimes. Um, And I started out with a lot of promise. Uh, I made this when I was six months old. A genius, my parents called me. But then I really didn't progress very much for a very long time. This I made when I was 16. (laughs) But then I went to art college where I learned uh, the history of art and form and function and light and shadow and perspective and and, uh, all these different techniques. And now, with that four-year education under my belt, I draw like this, (laughs) which is so much better. Though people do tend to ask me, a lot, whether I can really draw feet. (laughs) Let the record show that yes, indeed, (laughs) I can draw feet, although apparently I can't count toes very well. (laughs) It was in art school that I discovered this, this love of putting words and pictures together and playing around with what you could do with the two things. And all of the early art that I was making concentrated on this. These are some of the early paintings that I made. And, and you can kind of see from this what would eventually become my, my picture book style. Uh, and these are all little stories in a way. So I was a storyteller always without realizing it. And I really had a thing with seagulls at some point. I, I think they're inherently evil creatures. Uh, but the, the connection between putting words and pictures together in art was one thing. But figuring out that I could do that in picture books was actually a complete accident. Um, the accident occurred when I thought that I was making the sketch for what was going to be a new painting, and that was that sketch. And for a final year project in art college, I decided to see how close to a finished book that I could, I could make from that, because um, let me go back a second. 
I basically made this drawing. I was like, there's something really interesting about this, that somebody's trying to physically catch something totally intangible like a star. It's like, I bet there's more than one way to do that. So I drew a series of drawings that looked like this and thought this will make a nice series of pictures. And I then discovered that, no, this is going to be much better served as a book. And that's when I decided to try uh, and, and turn it into a book for my last year in, in art college. And that's the result of that. And then when I graduated from art college, I decided that I never, ever wanted to get a proper job and that I had this idea that maybe I'll make art and tell stories for a living. So I went about getting my book idea published, and that went well. And then they asked me if I had any more stories up my sleeve, and I was like, yeah, of course, loads. I suppose I was armed with a piece of important wisdom, though. Um, but when my first book came out, I'll, I can comfortably admit now that I felt like a complete fraud. I was just waiting around to be found out for, you know, this pretender. And um, it turns out that most successful artists, whatever their field that I've met since then, has also secretly felt like a fraud whenever they compared themselves to the artists that they admired at an early point in their career. And uh, over the years, I've come to learn something that, that confidence is an absolute miracle worker. And when thinking about this later in life, I realized that this was really important, me pretending that I knew what I was doing. The truth is that although I did feel like a fraud for a long time, I've come to realize that I've actually turned into the artist that I was pretending to be, or actually really that I wasn't pretending at all. I was just sort of giving this, this in a way, false confidence to, to the, the things that I was saying and doing. And, and I think self-confidence is really paramount to, to anything like that because if you don't believe the work that you're doing, nobody else is going to. And uh, it's not that you're lying to anyone at the outset, but you're just giving your particular tastes and, and worldview a, a platform on which to stand. And that's what I think sets individuals apart, is their particular way of seeing things. I don't think I was anywhere near close to being the most talented person in my class at our college, but I just had a particular worldview and enough confidence to follow it through and just sort of see the, way that I see, see the world the way I see it. And that, I think, is why people enjoy my work. Not necessarily because I'm technically better, it's just that I have a particular worldview. And I give my chan my, myself the chance to, to explore that and, and find that. And if you try to be anyone other than yourself, you're always going to be seen for what you are. Okay, that's the lecture over. Um, so I sort of grew up at one point, and then um, now that I, that I am a little older and so on, I, I've, I've left Belfast, and I now live in, in New York City, which looks like that. And this is what my studio looks like in New York. And... Uh, this is me hard at work. Ooh, can I, where did I go? Yeah, that's me hard at work in my studio talking business on the telephone, um, wheeling and dealing, shaking things down, you know. <laughs> I do a lot of different things, and because I do a lot of different things, um, people ask me an awful lot, what's your average day like? And being the kind of person that likes to visually problem solve, I thought, well, maybe if I can work out over the course of a year, all the things that I do, and then divide that by 365, I'll come up with my average day. Brilliant idea. So I started about doing that, and I realized pretty quickly that it didn't make me look very good. It sort of made me look like I was really disorganized and had no idea of how to organize my time. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's another way to, to, to look at this where I don't necessarily look at my average day, but if I were to look at my average year, then maybe I will... You just want to go back and see all that again? 
Can you read all that? Answering emails, writing lists, crossing things off lists, ignoring lists, drinking tea, drinking coffee, eating food, watering plants, thinking, staring, drawing, gluing, gluing, misspelling, miscutting, eBay, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, going to the bathroom, quoting made-up articles in the New York Times, checking vlogs, traveling, airport security, gets the biggest chunk, cleaning myself, talking business on the phone, talking shite on the phone, moving things around, feeling pleased with myself. So I thought, maybe if I look at things from a slightly different perspective, I might put some damage uh, control on my, on my reputation. And I thought, I'll just look at my average year. So I went about that task, and that was going pretty well until I kind of forgot what I was doing and then realized that <laughs> nobody really likes pie charts anyway. So let's move on. I think a much more helpful thing will be talking about how I, a breakdown in how I turn my curiosity into books. So... It all starts by simply drawing. And uh, drawing is actually an, an uh, over, or sorry, underrated thing. I recently gave a workshop once with a bunch of adults where we were going to make picture books. And it was a four-hour workshop. And I was like, okay, right, so you're just going to you know, draw things in this page and then we'll move them over. Everybody got stuck on page one. They're like, I haven't drawn since I was 12. And uh, it's such an important thing. So everything starts simply with drawing. And I'd normally use sort of uh, HB medium-sized pencils for, for medium drawings. And then I'll use small pencils for really small drawings. And then if I've got a huge drawing I need to do, I'll bring out the really big pencil. And I'll start drawing all the little different parts of the story that I'm thinking of in my sketchbook. And uh, we've established the basic structure of, of good stories and I use the sketchbooks as a, as a place in which I can explore what they are. Um, and I will do this. I'll use the sketchbook, and I'll tell the story using two things, and that's words. And in case you don't know what words look like, that's what they look like. And pictures, which look like that. And I start to see all of the different milestones of the story. Uh, I'll begin to see what it might look like, what it might sound like, and what it might say, what it might show. And the most difficult part and the most fun part of making picture books is trying to figure out how you get that beginning, middle, and end of the story all to fit into the limited number of pages that there are in a sketchbook. It's only 32, and that's for technical reasons. For It's a multiple of four because the way they fold the pages and everything. That's a whole separate conversation. But I would draw lots of little boxes like this in my sketchbook and then figure out, okay, well, roughly I think this is what you see in this page, and then roughly this is what you see opposite, and I use this as a place to explore how the story will flow over all the pages, and, and uh, that, that can be, I think that's where, where some of the real uh, storytelling skills come in. Um, I personally like letting the pictures do the lion's share of the work for me. Um, for example, in this spread, what is the point in saying that he, the, the boy put on his coat, his scarf, his hat, his goggles, and gloves, and then stretched, whenever you can see that perfectly well for yourself. Um, I think the relationship between words and pictures is much more interesting than that. Um, I do recognize the power of words, uh, wh especially when used sparingly in contrast to the pictures, because I think that together with the reader, we can go on a merry dance if the words and the pictures are, are doing very different things, and that's why I let them do very different things. Um, I can often get around really clumsy or awkward things like an emotional goodbye, for example, in, in The Way Back Home, uh, by letting the picture contain all of the emotion and the words are practically devoid of any. I mean, if you don't look at the picture, you said, they say goodbye and thank each other for their help. You know, that's 
there's no emotion in that. But if you look at the picture, you can sort of see all of the, the, the emotion that's pent up in, in this, this strange relationship. Um, I think that not saying something is often way more powerful than saying something. And what you leave out can be way more powerful than what you put in. Because the way a person might imagine something, some sort of incident or some scenario, in their own head, by it just being implied, might, is probably going to be much more powerful than any particular way of me spelling it out. And that's why I like to leave the details in my books vague. I also like to leave the, the geographical details vague too, because then the book can be anywhere, at any time, at any place. Uh, I've given book tours all around the world where people in, in, in China, in Chile, in, in Malaysia, all think that the books are set where they're from. And I think that's a, that's a brilliant thing. That's why I leave my backgrounds mostly empty. It's not because I can't draw them, unlike feet. Um, but the same kind of a thing goes for emotional content too. What you leave out can be sometimes much more powerful than what you leave in. This is the moment in The Heart and the Bottle where the, the little girl discovers the empty chair that's left void by a loved one in her life. And this is the spread. There are no words, because there's no words that really will do a better job of describing that than, than this picture. And, but the story depends on words in other places. And I'm going to quote a good friend of mine, another picture book uh, genius, in my opinion, um, John Classen, when he gave a talk in D.C. last year. So I've got this written down here. Hang on. So John says, picture books are designed for economy. They are designed to be short and spare. The stories that suit them are simple in their setup, clear in the movements, and they're also perfect vehicle for people that enjoy implication. A story in a picture book is made up of two parts, the words and the pictures, which means that the actual story isn't stated explicitly by either side, but exists between them and is only ever put together as the reader moves through the story. So if the story has a boy seeing a box in the field, you can write, a boy saw a box in the field. But you can also just draw a boy standing in a field looking at a box with a text saying, the boy saw something. The reader knows a box when they see one. This kind of thing gets especially interesting when you begin to use it as it might apply to emotions rather than just boxes. Children are, usual, are the usual audience for these sorts of books, and fortunately, they are especially good at this. I can remember, this is John talking, I can remember being told I had to leave a favorite toy behind when I was packing for a trip and being devastated about how abandoned this toy must be feeling. I stood there pouring everything I knew about how it felt to be left behind onto this unmoving object, apologizing to it, trying to explain, and the more it didn't move, the more devastated I got. It didn't matter that it didn't move. I knew the circumstances of loneliness when I saw them. So I think that sums it up pretty perfectly. And the, this relationship, this slight balance between what you're saying and what you're showing and what you can do and what you can't do, I feel that I'm at a massive advantage because I both write and illustrate the books that I make. Um, so I have the opportunity not just to let the words inform the pictures, but also the other way around. I can have the, the, the words be informed by the pictures. And this is not always the case. Normally, whenever people are illustrating a picture book, the manuscript is completed and then handed off to an editor which, who, who works on it and then hands it to an illustrator and the illustrator provides the pictures. And it's not often a two-way street. And because the, the process is so integrated for me, people often ask which I do first, the words or the pictures. And the answer actually is both, which looks like that. Actually, there was a time whenever I was in, uh, in a school in the United States somewhere and, and uh, there was a range of different classes and one of the older children at the back asked that question, which do you first, the words or the pictures? And I said both. And one of the younger kids at the very front of the audience went like this. 
He's like, yep, you got it. Never told him otherwise. Um, but but it is, it, it's true. It's that they, uh, they both happen at the same time. Um, if we look again at this drawing, this is one of the early drawings from the way back home. And uh, I'm experimenting at this point. This is one of the very first drawings that I've made in the sketchbook about at the same time, what it sounds like and what it looks like, what I say and what I show. So right from the very beginning, I'm playing with that balance, and that's the majority of how that, that process goes. And, and because this process is so intertwined and the relationship is so delicate and so powerful, and because I enjoy this process so much and the balance of it so much that I had no interest in trying to just bring somebody else's words to life because it's this much more beautiful relationship, in my opinion. And so I always swore that I would never illustrate somebody else's book. I have now illustrated somebody else's book. Although, in my defense, I was completely deceived into doing so. Uh, I uh, went into my, the, the editor at, at Penguin Books in the U.S., who published my work, and the editor called me in for a meeting, a very important meeting, but then had to leave to take a very important phone call in another room and left with the instructions, don't look at anything on my desk. course, first thing I do is look at what's on his desk, and there's this manuscript sitting there the day the crayons quit by Drew Daywalt, and so I flicked through it while I was waiting for him, and I flicked through it, and I was like, this, you know, there's really something here, and then I started to imagine how I would do it, and then I had a very clear vision of how it should be done, and then I started getting annoyed, because I knew if somebody else did it, they would just do it wrong and mess it up, <laughs> and then Michael came back into the room, and I asked him, who's illustrating this, and he goes, no one yet, are you interested? And I was like, <laughs> so... I had this immediate vision of how it should be done. So we went for lunch around the corner to a restaurant called The Ear Inn in, uh, in Manhattan. And it's called The Ear Inn because there's a neon sign outside that says bar, but the right-hand side of the letter B is broken, so it just says ear at nighttime. And in there they have these tables with, uh, where you can order your lunch and whatnot, and uh, they have crayons. Uh, and it's not, you know, not just for kids but for everybody, and so it's always very funny to, to see very important businessmen taking notes on the tablecloth in crayon. And so Michael and I went in there to discuss this possible new project, and, and I thought, you know, maybe I could just illustrate this book in crayon. I mean, it just makes so much sense. Why, why don't I do that? And so I started drawing some things out on the tablecloth, and uh, so did Michael, the editor, and those are his drawings, not mine. <laughs> uh, and, and I thought, you know what, I, th I, think, I think this is a book that I should do. And so I did, and I mean... Apart from anything else, it's a book about crayons that go on strike. And being a Northern Irishman, I couldn't resist a good protest book because uh, we certainly know how to complain north of the border. It's a skill we've turned into an art. And I know that I said that I'm at an advantage by writing and illustrating books and that I had no interest in simply providing the picture of somebody else's words because I enjoy that fine balance and fragile yet powerful interplay between words and pictures so much. But this is an exception for one simple reason, because of the letters. The entire structure of the story depends on letters as a visual device, and, and you can't really play with that. There's no messing around with that. Or more simply, simply put, there's no opportunity for me to have the words be informed by the pictures, because they are letters. So in a weird way, there was this big concrete column in the middle that couldn't be avoided. And that was actually a lot of fun to sort of run around, to dance around this 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 big immovable object in the middle of the room. And, and I've heard said that very often creativity is inspired by boundaries. I can't quite remember who said that. Doesn't really matter, though. Um, anyway, 
Here is one of the very first drawings that I made. Um, and the keen eye here will notice the Father Ted homage right away. Down with that sort of thing. There's about maybe one person a year emails me. I was like, is that a Father Ted reference? And yes, it is. And, uh, but one problem whenever I was trying to bring this book to life was because, as you can see from this drawing, because my drawings are so realistic and they look like photographs, I had a hard time trying to pretend that I was a seven-year-old doing drawings. I think that's how old Duncan's supposed to be. Uh, and so I, I was having a hard time making my drawings look like they were seven-year-olds. Uh, and I tried a couple of different tricks, um, some of which worked, some of which didn't. I tried using my left hand, which worked an awful lot for some of it. But then I also thought, maybe I should just bring in a couple of actual seven-year-olds. So I asked my nephew to do me a bunch of drawings. He was like, draw me... Seven princesses, four lighthouses, three santas, nine trees, an elephant, a crocodile, and a cowboy. And he provided. And you know what? Some of it was so good that I insisted that it goes in the actual book. Um, though I couldn't actually give him credit, seriously, because of child underage labor laws in the U.S. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, the tree, that, the tree that I made got cut for his tree. He also drew the frog, and the, I think that's a grasshopper, though he doesn't know either. Um, but that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. Not everything that I make and that I want makes it into the final book. Another really good example of that is this page from Lost and Found. Originally, and about a week before the book was going to go to print, this storm scene was only one single page. And when I was looking through it in the physical object, I was like, it just doesn't feel big enough. It doesn't feel like it is enough power in that moment. And I was like, this has to be a double-page spread. And so if you make that a double-page spread, then something else has to get the cut. And uh, this drawing was put onto the, the editing room floor at the last second. Um, it's two monsters who were asked if they knew where penguins come from. But it's okay, because it turns out they didn't, so it didn't really affect the story anyway. Um, but normally I figure out decisions like that in the sketchbook at the very early drawing stage, so it's not always right at the last minute. But to take you through the life of a piece of art in the books, it begins with a drawing like this, just sort of pencil and, and uh, very, very rough. And while I try to imagine how this moment fits in around all the other particular moments in the book, and then once I know that it's going to make it in, I'll do a slightly more detailed line art drawing, which will get dropped into a layout with the words on it so I know to make the final painting around the words. And then I use a light box to, to make that actual final piece of art. And then that's how it looks in the final book. You'll notice that I switched the words around between here and here because it made the boy look higher. Um, but the um, materials, it, so hands up here how many people are genuinely interested in, in, in making art and sort of being illustrators and making picture books because then I'll know how long to talk about materials for. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, I use a range of different materials. Basically all of them, um, and often it's whatever is closest to hand. Uh, this from the great paper caper, it's not really. It's, I experiment with whatever's closest to hand and then know how I feel about things. But So from the great paper caper, this is collage. That's a pink sheet of paper glued to a white sheet of paper, and somebody gave me a birthday present once wrapped in wood wrapping paper. I was like, this is really good wrapping paper, and I've used it for trees ever since, and I'm almost out. Um, and then just some drawing and painting. I use a lot of watercolor. Um, I use lots of bits of old books mixed with painting. And uh, 
That's something that I started doing uh, right around the time of The Incredible Book Eating Boy. Whenever I had the idea that I was going to make all the art for The Incredible Book Eating Boy onto old pages from books, and I ran that past HarperCollins, they were like, we're going to get sued. Don't do it. Actually, just take a photograph of every single piece of paper you plan to use, and we'll see if we can get it cleared, which is why I ended up taking a bunch of photographs that look like this on the left, and then that's how it looks in the final book. And you know what? There actually was one instance where we potentially might have got sued. Uh, and I got around that very delicate problem by taking some sandpaper and rubbing the words out so you couldn't see them anymore. Um, but a big part of using Photoshop in my work was overcoming this internal debate about how important it is to have an accurate original piece of art. Because I also work as a fine artist, and I'm going to, if you want to hear about it, I'll talk a bit more about that later on. But ultimately, Art that's made for picture books is designed for reproduction. So does it matter whether the original matches what goes in the book? And I, for this one, it's about 95% that's how the piece of art physically is in the real world, and then 5% Photoshop sort of cleaning up and whatnot on top of it. But that's a, that's a debate that was totally thrown to the wind when I got kicked out of one studio and had to work in a temporary space while I was making stuck. Uh, and so tried this new technique where the whole thing is made digitally. So the original for this piece of art looks like that. So I could do, all, normally I'll have like five or six pieces of paper spread out around me for different parts of the book, but this one is able to make it in a, in a much smaller space. Um, so I would just scan this weirdness in, kind of add some color to it and layer it up and bingo, it looks like that. Um, and in stock, I finally figured out how to incorporate my typography fully into the books, um, which I was really glad about that HarperCollins let me do that because my spelling isn't great. And uh, it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I've always loved the way that my handwriting looks. Um, I always have. And it's, it's, I suppose it all started by me labeling things everywhere. Uh, in my studio, certainly, I know where everything is because it's got a label. All right, you've got one guess. What's in this box? You're right. Um, but it's, uh, I suppose it's something that I've become known for uh, as well in other people's books too, even in the covers of, of other people's books. There's some of the collaborations that I've done with the, the wonderful John Boyne and some other people's books. But then even outside of the world of uh, publishing, I've had a lot of fun with, with playing with, with my typography. This is for Fabergé eggs. This is my map of everywhere not on Earth, sort of. And then I got the opportunity to uh, do all the typography for TED Talks one year, which led to doing a brilliant project for one.org. A little short film, which, if you bear with me, is only is less than a minute long. This is the universe. These are some planets. And this one is the Earth. It's the world on which you live, along with seven billion other people. But there's a whole other world you don't see. This is the world of extreme poverty. In this world, over a billion people live on less than a dollar twenty-five cents a day. This is not right. But there is good news. If we go back to 1990, there were many more people living in a world of extreme poverty. In 1990, over 40% of people lived there. But in just 20 years, the world of extreme poverty has halved. Now here's the incredible bit. If we keep going, then by the time we get to 2030, we could have almost no people living in this world of extreme poverty. This is very good news. But we're not there yet. To get there, we need you, and we really need your voice. Let's bring everyone back 
to this world. Join one. We wanted to have that be no people in the world of extreme poverty in 2030, but they were worried that if, when 2030 rolls around, there were so people that they would get sued. So, um, But that, that project actually led to another typography project with, with you two. You probably recognize your man's voice there. Um, where I ended up uh, painting a portrait of Nelson Mandela uh, for them and doing this, this whole music video. Uh, which And they were really, really lovely. But I, I don't know if you can see, but I managed to get a bit of paint on Bono's favorite pair of shoes, which he was pretty dead on about, actually. And then that's led to doing some more work with the other charity, Red, more typography for their current tour. So I think it's going to roll around here sometime whenever they can find somewhere to fit it. And, uh, but going back to picture books, I always wanted to use typography in my picture books. And I've been trying for, for many years with limited success. Originally with the incredible book and boy, I wanted to have the whole thing handwritten. And uh, that proved very difficult for multiple reasons. One of which was co-editions, because I had the idea that I would also do all the co-editions. So this is for the Spanish version. See all that writing on the right there? I had to handwrite that all, and then I would send it off to, to the Spanish uh, publisher, and then they would send it back with all of the mistakes I'd made and, and circled in red pen, and then I would fix those and then send it back, and then they would send it back with all the new mistakes circled in red pen. And so by the time it came around to the Japanese edition, I'm like, you know what, let's just forget this whole thing. But we, we eventually did figure it out with, uh, with up and down, and then I used it entirely in stock. Um, and I just love the feeling of... of that hand-on pencil writing in my illustrations. And, you know, the old pencil, it's where it all starts. With, actually, you know what? That's not technically true. It does not all start with a pencil. It all starts with the idea. Good or bad, I've had both. Most of my ideas just come from everywhere, from watching planet Earth and all its people. And uh, I'll take you through one or two of the books and how the ideas came about. Um, so sometimes an idea can come from a simple drawing, that can spark a chain reaction. And the idea for The Incredible Book Eating Boy came about uh, because of uh, this drawing, um, which, which started uh, a couple of other things. So firstly, I made this. Then uh, at the same time, I realized that I'd been collecting old books for another project. And then the third thing that came into that was that I had met the smartest man on earth. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about him later on. And then I put that drawing, which was the starting point, um, with the old books, which was the style, along with The Smartest Man on Earth, which became the plot. And through all those th three things being crammed together, The Incredible Book Eating Boy came out of the, the middle of it. Um, sometimes it's real events that, it, that inspire stories. For Lost and Found, there is a real event that happened uh, about four years before I came up with the idea, where a school group in Belfast went to Belfast Zoo, and one of the kids managed to break away from the group, climb into the penguin enclosure, climb out of the penguin enclosure with a baby penguin under his arm <laughs> and got the whole way home before anybody realized. That, that really happened. And they had to keep the penguin in the bathtub overnight until the man from the zoo could come the next day to, to get him. And I just sort of thought, well, I wonder what they talked about. Um, and it, it, you know, it sort of as an homage to that story, I paid tribute to it by staging a photo shoot with my nephew uh, whenever the book came out. And despite the incident that had happened, Belfast Zoo let me back into the penguin enclosure with my nephew dressed up as the, the boy. Uh, and you can't really tell it in that photograph, but my, my, uh, my nephew Henry discovered only at this point that he has a fear of penguins. <laughs> they do make weird noises. Um, and so for the poster, I recreated some scenes for the, from the book for, for where the, the Titanic uh, building, which was going to uh, house the exhibition, 
with all the original art. And so I put all these things together, and that's the actual building. And this is going somewhere, believe it or not. Um, it's another example of how ideas travel. These photographs were seen by uh, a certain gentleman who works at Studio AKA, and he realized that because I was able to see my own book in a different way, that it's doing a collaboration on a film would be something that I might be interested in, which it was. And together we, we made, uh, mostly Studio AKA, we made this, um, this beautiful version of Lost and Found, which looks like this. So if you haven't seen it, here's a very short trailer. Toy Boy with an alternative ending where a shark came up and ate them both at that point. But the production company shot it down immediately. Um, so I know that I told you earlier that all my stories are true. Um, this was inspired by a true story, but it wasn't quite true. The Incredible Book Eating Boy, not true at all. You don't actually get smarter if you eat books. I know I tried. Um, but Stuck really genuinely is a true story. Has anybody here read Stuck? Has anybody here not read Stuck? Okay, a few people. So basically, Stuck is a story about he gets a kite stuck in a tree, and he throws increasingly larger objects at it to, to knock it out of the tree. This really happened. I did get a kite stuck in a tree while I was on holiday, and I really did try sort of climbing up and swinging it and shaking it loose. And I also really got a, my favorite shoe stuck trying to knock it loose and a chair, which then also almost shattered the rental car we'd hired. Uh, and uh, I couldn't find a duck. But I did start to exaggerate around this point because Floyd, unbound by the laws of physics in his world, could pick up a car and hurl it. I could only lift the car like this high. So it certainly wasn't for throwing it. But, you know, don't forget, I'll revert your attention back to an earlier statement. Um, and the irony is that we left without the kite, and I became extremely annoyed by this because I had taken this short holiday with, with, uh, with some friends and family to get away from my studio and all the noise in New York City because I needed to come up with an idea for a book. I was like, right, I'm just going to get out, get some peace and quiet and come up with an idea. And we became so distracted with this task of getting this kite unlodged from this tree that it took up my entire time. And it was a really expensive kite that we didn't own, that the house we were renting owned. I was like, there goes the security deposit. And I got all the way back to my studio, and my, the, the neighbor my studio asked me, how was your trip? And I was like, well, wait to hear what happened. And it was only when I was about halfway through telling this story that my eyes glazed over, and I was like, Okay, not so, so much a waste of time after all. Ideas come from everywhere. And uh, sometimes they, they come from just simply enjoying the work of other people. Um, not to say that copying is okay. It's not. Um, everyone is influenced by somebody. But I think interesting things happen as part of this sort of three-step 
process whenever you're being influenced by somebody. And to run through those really quickly, that is observe. So look around you. Enjoy the work of other people. Read books, watch movies, stand in front of paintings, admire good carpentry or color combination or sock choices or whatever it might be. And absorb it, digest it, let it sit in, sit in it for a while, put it in your mental bank, but digest it wholly so that it becomes part of all the other things that you're also digesting. And uh, then react, put it back out there and let it loose. And hopefully you've forgotten where all these little things come from. Um, as they're turning around in, your, in the, the big sponge that you have for a brain, um, the hope is that while you're digesting everything, when it's all mixing about in there, that at some point things merge together so that when they do come out, they are truly your own. And uh, let's go back to the beginning a second to talk about that. Do you remember I told you that this was going to be a painting? And then I had the idea that I would turn it into a book. Well, that happened whenever I saw... The, the idea for the painting came about whenever I saw a star reflected in the water and for a second I was sort of sitting by a pier and I kind of looked down and I thought that I dropped something into the water because I could see this thing. It's very still water and I saw this, this star reflected and I tricked myself in a way and it reminded me of an old story called The Moon in the Mill Pond by Uncle Ramus. It was like a Br'er Rabbit story and at around the same time as that I'd also be given this book by a friend um, and it reminded me of how good picture books could be just as a vehicle for telling stories. The and it made me look back on all the other books I'd enjoyed when I was young, which is why the first line is an homage to The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, Once There Was a Boy, and why the boy in my book has this red and white stripy jumper um, after the My Favorite Monster and, and Where the Wild Things Are. My first book is all of these things, but it's also none of these things. Um, when I think back on it, I realize that I still loved these books as an adult, and that's what I want to tell you now, sort of a confession to make that the reason, the thought process that's going through my head when I'm actually making books and who I make them for, people assume that as a person who makes books that are primarily enjoyed by children, that I try to figure out, that's a child by the way, um, that I try to figure out what goes on in kids' heads and then try to simulate that with what happens out there in the real world. Um, whereas the truth is that I don't really fully understand what happens out in the real world and, and I don't think anybody understands what goes on in a kid's head. So I don't really genuinely don't worry too much, um, think too much about the stories that I think kids want to hear about these days. That's still a kid, child. Um, instead, I think about the sorts of stories that, that I want to hear. And I have a hard enough time coping with what goes on out there, and, and I've given up a long time ago on trying to understand what happens in my own head. So I don't aim my stories at children. Tanks and analogy for stories here. Instead, I am the stories at myself. <laughs> Still an analogy for stories, don't worry. My books are more like buckshot in that they're, they're aimed at anybody who picks them up, from 1 to 100. Hang on, is there anybody here who's 101? Okay, good. Um, so, but, you know, enough of the violence. Anyway, I realize that I'm also not the, the only person who thinks like this. I don't write for children. I write, and somebody says, that's for children. And then C.S. Lewis as well. Anybody who writes down to children is simply wasting his time. So there you have it. But it's also important to point out that my ideas for stories don't always work. Sometimes I've got a beginning and a middle of a story idea, but with no end. Sometimes I've got a beginning and an end with no middle. 
Sometimes I've got no beginning, and sometimes I've only got a beginning. Sometimes I've only got an end. And I always keep these half-cooked ideas lying around in my sketchbooks and in various states of completion. And, and every so often, one of these half-cooked ideas collides with another half-cooked idea, and they form together to, com- to complete a, a fully formed idea. And this is the essence of being creative. Creativity is born from the mind of play, making random connections and associations, said by a very wise man. Although if you want to be a bit more academic about it, Einstein said it that way. Um, Combinatory play seems to be the essential feature in productive thought. Simply putting two random things together, that's often what creativity is about. And sometimes when you take not just one half-cooked idea or two half-cooked ideas, but 26 half-cooked ideas and smash them together, you get an alphabet book. And that's pretty much how that came about. It was filled with little stories that weren't quite big enough to be full picture books, but not worth throwing away either. And an idea that then combines to become even larger than itself. And apparently uh, a series of ideas that's worthy of picking up the CBI Book of the Year Award, which I'm incredibly honored to have won. Thank you. As I said earlier, it's one of the most prestigious awards I've ever won, and I'm now going to put it in front of my Murray Hill Indoor Football Championship 2012 trophy, which sits front and center. Um, but it's a short story for every letter of the alphabet. Do you want me to, hear, do you want me to read one of them out? That? Okay. All right. Edmund was an astronaut. For ages, he'd been training to go on an adventure up into space to meet some aliens, although there was a problem. Space was about 328,416 feet above him, and Edmund had a fear of heights. Anything over three feet in the air was a bit much for him. He had a long way to go. Another 328,413 feet to be accurate. One more. Burning a bridge. Bernard and Bob lived on either side of a bridge and for years had been battling for reasons neither could remember. One day Bob decided to fix things so Bernard couldn't bother him anymore by burning the bridge between them. But Bob learned an important lesson that day. He needed the bridge to get back. This story was in no way, shape, or form inspired by growing up in Northern Ireland. (laughs) Interestingly, this book is all illustrated using simple line drawings and uh, one or two choice colors. There's an ease about this. There's an accessibility and and a a, a welcomeness to this. I feel that that works really well. But it's not how the book was originally conceived and originally executed. I spent about a year working on this book in full color, which I got through all the way to letter T before I realized it was too much, it was too heavy, it felt too cumbersome. And so I went right back to the very beginning and re-illustrated it all in simple black and white. And that's what you have. So sometimes ideas don't always turn out the way that you think they are, but let's just say that's our little secret. Um, so how are we doing on time? I've been rambling for a while because I know that we want to ask some questions. Do you just want to hear about some of the fine art I make or will we go to the next projects? Which? Okay. You sure? I talk about science and stuff. Okay. All right. So another tangent then. Uh, remember I was saying that I fell into making picture books whenever I was uh, in pursuing painting in, in, in college? I never did stop painting, um, even though all the picture books uh, were, were much more successful. In the painting work I was doing for a long time, I always secretly wanted to, to make um, 
myself uh, known as an artist and as a painter. And at around the same time I was making Lost and Found, an interesting thing started to happen to the, the fine art that I was making, which is that the words started falling off the canvases. I was no longer interested in putting words and pictures together in canvases because seemingly I was completely satisfied with that thirst in my picture books. The stories, or the, the paintings for a long time were, were stories but without any words. Uh, and then this happened. Um, I had a talk with an engineer once about uh, the difference between going to engineering school and art school. And in art school, you can get away with anything as long as you've not guffed the back it up. But uh, in engineering school, there is very much a right and a wrong answer with real consequences. Uh, and so I had thought about that. and was like, I wonder. So there's, there's two very equally valid ways of seeing the world, logically and emotionally. I wonder if you can see them both at the same time. So I made this painting and slapped a mathematical equation onto a, like a classic figurative painting. Uh, and that painting was bought by the smartest man in the world, um, who is actually a professor of quantum physics in Queen's University, um, although he doesn't really look like that. He actually looks like that. Um, <laughs> but he explained my painting back to me. He was like, obviously, you're making this about Bell's string theory and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh, no. But we met and we talked and we had a really interesting conversation about art and philosophy and mathematics and so interesting that we met up several times over the course of a year and ended up making a project together about it called Additional Information where he would pair up mathematical equations to paintings I was making and there was this thing in quantum physics where they're ultimately trying to find the unifying theory of everything which is the quest for ultimate intelligence. At the same time I was making this project, I was making this project which is about being the smartest person on earth. Absolutely no coincidence there. Um, but anyway, so I had never really been that big into figurative painting before I tried to use it as a way to counteract uh, science in this art versus science debate. And initially, I looked at three classic forms of painting. So landscape like this one. There is an equation kind of in there, if you can see it. Um, uh, still life, like this one. And portraiture. And portraiture was particularly interesting to me. One, because I realized I enjoyed it and was pretty good at it, but also it was this weird sensation of how is it that we recognize a bunch of blobs of paint on a two-dimensional canvas as representing something in the three-dimensional world? You don't just see that's a bunch of colors of paint. You're like, oh, that's something, or not even just something, that's someone, or not even just someone with portraiture, that's someone I know. That, that ability to be able to recognize just fascinated me. And, uh, and I, I kept making portraits uh, for, for a while, actually, all sorts of different ones. And so this, these are some of the early portraits I was making and then started using them as a way to mess about with the way in which we see things. So this is replacing Adriana in three parts. I painted the, her portrait three times and then slowly started to replace the, the, the colors with the Pantone colors. So in theory, it's the same information, but just presented in a totally different way. Um, there's a close-up of that. And, it, and just in case you're wondering how I actually painted it underneath. Yep. Um... But when I was working through all these, these theories in quantum physics with this, uh, this professor in Queen's University, I came across something called the theory of hidden variables, which fascinated me. It's basically science's way of saying that uh, things exist that we don't understand, uh, but we'll have to take them into account somehow because they're affecting other calculations that we're trying to make. And I thought, that's, God, that's really, really interesting. And I made a piece of art about it called Portrait with Jesus and Hidden Variables. Because a lot of religious people said, well, that proves the existence of God. And a lot of scientific people said, well, no, that just proves they don't know anything yet. So I made this just sort of as a way to explore that. And uh, I offended somebody um, because they ripped it in half. 
uh, but in, in uh, the true interest of science where you pursue a, a goal, I redrew it and then painted it out again. But the, the fact that this painting was divided in half gave me a really interesting idea for some of the other portraits that I was making where I took a portrait I made and then I plunged it into a bucket of paint, uh, completely obscuring the bottom half just to see what would happen. And an interesting thing did happen because I was so preoccupied with the mechanics of trying to figure out how much paint to use, how big the box should be, that I completely forgot to take a photograph of the paint before I stuck it in the paint. And then the, the painting was exhibited in the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, lots of people saw it, and it caught this real interest online, and, and loads and loads of people asked me, did you really paint the bottom half of that? I was like, yes, I did. I just can't prove it. Uh, then it turns out that uh, somebody did photograph it, but I didn't see that photograph for, for a year. Um, a journalist that was in the studio, and they had taken a photograph of me against my desk, and the, they only sent me the photograph a year later. And there behind me on the wall is that painting the day before I stuck it in the paint. And what was crazy was that I remembered it differently. In the, the course of a year, I remembered the painting differently. I, I had it in my mind that, that she was wearing a white shirt. And apparently, from this photograph that I saw a year later, it was a gray and white striped singlet. And I thought that's a very strange sensation. Then my younger brother, Brian, was over visiting me at that point, And he started telling a story about our mother. Uh, who passed away 14 years ago, but it's a story that I tell all the time. And he was telling it to a group of his friends, and I was there, and I was like, you're telling it wrong? That's not what happened. And then I realized it was the exact same emotional reaction I'd had to him hear hearing, hearing him tell that story to seeing this photograph. And so I just started to make a whole bunch of these dip paintings. But this time around, using that, I decided not to photograph any of them before. And instead, I would just invite a handful of people to come along and witness them before I plunge them into the paint as part of a performance. And so that's, that's what the, the aftermath looks like. So just to give you an idea of how many buckets of paint it takes to, to get one of these things dipped, this one took 36 buckets of paint. So I invite people, I unveil the painting, explain to them that no photographs exist of it. They're the first, the last, and the only people to ever see it. And then I dunk it and pull it out. Oh, sorry, I went the wrong way. Then I pull it out and I put another piece of paper underneath with uh, some things that are written by the sitter um, that in an interview that I've done. And, uh, and then I get the people who are there to record what they remember on camera as a way of that's the only record that exists of this painting underneath. And I suppose that's always how history was passed down. A few people were there, remember it, tell it, and then there's all sorts of things, but there was only very few people who were actually there. So... Um, a lot of these paintings have been picked up in design blogs and decor magazines and all the rest, but, uh, but all with the slant that you too can update a vintage painting that you find in a flea market. And uh, none of them have stopped to realize that uh, these are not actually vintage paintings. I mean, I have destroyed vintage paintings before. This is a vintage painting that I found and, and painted right over. And it's something I've been playing around with for a while. I sort of pick up these these old prints or paintings and that look like they're the background for something and then just pop something in the middle of it to give it some action. And after a little while, I realized that they're all disaster scenes that I'm painting. Um, so I call them my disaster paintings. Uh, but uh, this is exactly the same way that, that the, the backgrounds for This Moose Belongs to Me occurred. Um, when I was drawing out the story, I was like, well, what kind of a world should this moose and this boy be moving through? You know, North America, moose. Okay, who knows what the plural of moose is? Okay, hands up who says mice. <laughs> hands up who says mooses. 
Oh, I've built it up too much now. It's really disappointing. The plural of moose is moose. It's like sheep. Um, the, so they, moose live in North America, and so I knew I wanted it to be a North American landscape, and I was thinking about how I would paint it, and then I kind of look over at all these other old paintings that I have set aside for the disaster paintings. I'm like, I've got an idea, because the whole book is about ownership. And I was like, I'll just reappropriate some of these. So if HarperCollins thought that they had a hard time legally with old bits of paper, uh, they, they really flipped the lid whenever I said, I'm just going to take all these old paintings and just kind of use them. Um, but we did find one artist who painted this one, Krzyzewski, like an old uh, Czechoslovakian painter who was living in Montana, whose grandson was still alive, who, let us, who gave us permission to use it. And then we had the idea that, well, we can't find any of these other amateur artists, so let's ask him if he's got a bit of a backlog. And he was like, yeah, yeah, actually I do. So the whole book, This Miss Belongs to Me, is sort of this collaboration between me and this long-ago dead dude. Um, but it's, uh, it, it worked really, really well. Um, so the, the disaster paintings, um, I keep going back to the Titanic as well. It's, it's you know, made in Belfast. Another business that sank from there, from the DeLorean. And anyway, they, they, all, they, they seem like they might be a bit dark, but they, they all are made with uh, the starting point of, of humor. And... Humor has always been very important to me. A lot of people told me not to make this painting, um, but perhaps because I was, I was brought up with a, a healthy attitude towards disrespecting authority. Uh, for example, <laughs> yes, my mom had some real pearls of wisdom, uh, but she was also the sort of person who, when asked when, what was for dinner, she would say. Uh, but yeah, anyway, Hitler wasn't the only world leader whose facial hair I mocked. That's moustache and uni moi. All right, okay, okay. Do, okay, so do, do you, do you want to hear about, so do we have time to, uh, to run through some of the books that I'm currently working on coming out? Ten minutes? Okay. And that includes questions? Okay, we can run on a little longer. Is that okay with everybody? Okay. I illustrated another book by somebody else. Um... This is a book that's coming out in August, I believe, called The Day the Crayons Came Home. And let's face it, The Day the Crayons Quit was quite a, a popular book, uh, and everybody asked us to do a sequel, and we were like, no, 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 because sequels just reek of opportunism, and that'll be seen for what it is, and then they offered us a huge amount of money, and we're like, well... <laughs> Maybe if Drew comes up with a good idea, and he actually did come up with a good idea, and we worked on it together, and I genuinely think that this might be a better book than the first one. Just want to hear the first three pages. One day, Duncan and his crayons were happily coloring together when a strange stack of postcards arrived for him in the mail. It'll be in the post over here, don't worry. Dear Duncan, not sure if you remember me. My name is Maroon Crayon. You only colored with me once when you, drew, uh, when you used me to draw a scab, but whatever. Anyway... You lost me two and a half years ago on the couch, and then your dad sat on me and broke me in half. I never would have survived had it not been for Paperclip, who nursed me back to health. I'm finally better, so can you come get me? And can Paperclip come too? He's really holding me together. <laughs> Address to Duncan, Duncan's bedroom, upstairs, this house. Hey, Duncan, I'm sure you don't recognize me after the horrors I've been through. I think... I was tan crayon, or maybe burnt sienna. I don't know. I can't tell anymore. Have you ever been eaten by a dog and puked up in the living room rug? Because I have. I have been eaten by a dog and puked up in the living room rug, but, and it's not pretty. Not pretty at all. I'm more carpet fuzz than crayon now. Can you please bring me back your undigestible friend, tan, or possibly burnt sienna crayon? 
Hey, Duncan, remember last Halloween we told your little brother there was a ghost in the basement stairs? Then we drew that scary stuff on the wall. Sure was funny when he ran screaming, right? Wasn't so funny when you forgot to take me with you. Please come get me. I'm kind of terribly horrified. Your scared friend, glow-in-the-dark crayon. (laughs) You have to wait for the rest for when the book comes out. There's another one. It's been a busy year. I worked another book with a, a gentleman that you may have heard of called Owen Colfer. Um, Owen and I met in a bar in Auckland when we were both at the Writers' Festival. We're like, I like the, I like the cut of your jib. I was like, I like the cut of your jib too. And then we met in another bar in the Sydney Writers' Festival a week later. Like, yeah, yes, yes, we got a good rapport going. Let's work on a book together, which is pretty much what people say to each other after a few drinks all the time when they meet on, on uh, a book tour. But um, Owen emailed about a week later. I was like, I think I actually have an idea. I was like, yeah, I'm sure you do. And he emailed me this, the, the manuscript, and I was like, he does have an idea. And it was perfect. It was brilliant. And so we just set about illustrating it and uh, writing it uh, immediately. And the, the, the idea was a little bit bigger than the picture book, but a wee bit smaller than a chapter book. And it reminded me of Nicholas books by Sempe and Aderzo. Does anybody remember those? Yeah, a few people. But so I, that's, that was one of the, 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 the mo- models of inspiration for the way in which this book was sort of set up. And uh, this is an early drawing. And the challenge for a book about an imaginary friend was how you show an imaginary friend to set him aside from all the other people. And, and I sort of thought, you know, as, it's, as I wanted it to be a line art book to kind of reference this, this old style of, of French book, um, I thought maybe I'll just make the line a little bit fainter so that he's sort of see-through. Um, but this just looked like a printing error. Uh, and then I then another thing happened where I made this print for an exhibition in the South Bank Centre. You probably can't tell from there, but this is a letterpress print where its metal plates are made and they stamp in the, in the colour. But for a metal plate to stamp in colour, you have to be very particular about the way you design that. And here is an extreme close-up of the corner of that. So basically it's made up of all these dots, which give me an idea that might be a great way to illustrate Fred. And so pretty much, that's how Fred exists. Do you want to hear the start of that book too? Okay. Headaches are a pain. A bee sting hurts even more. But there is one thing that's worse than getting stung on the head by a bee in a rainy day, and that is loneliness. Being alone is no fun. It's, the first five minutes are okay, but it's downhill from there. And if you're alone, you're alone. It's not as if you can wish a friend to life. Usually this is true. You can wish and wish until your hair stands on end, but no imaginary friend will appear unless the conditions are just right. If you add a little electricity or luck or even magic, then an imaginary friend might appear just when you need one. An imaginary friend like Fred. Fred floated like a feather in the wind until a lonely child wished for him. Fred was always happy to be summoned, and he tried really hard to be the best imaginary friend he could be. He dressed up, he dressed down, he played ball, became a ball, and did whatever else his real friends wanted to do without once complaining. But no matter how hard Fred tried, the same thing happened every time. One day his friend would find a real friend in the real world, a friend who, didn't, who did not have to be ignored when grown-ups were around, and when this day came, as it always did, Fred would feel himself fade. Usually by lunchtime on the second day, Fred would be mostly invisible. And by bedtime on the fourth day, there would barely be a scrap of Fred left, just enough for the wind to catch and whisk him into the sky, where Fred would stay until someone knew wished for him. And you have to wait for the rest of the story to come out. Thank you.
So that's, that's pretty much all I have to say, other than that there's a pretty important vote coming up. Um, and uh, could, make, could make history. Ireland could make history, which I think is a wonderful thing. And it's, uh, it's, uh, we all deserve love. And I'll finish in this slide, you know, just for the fun of it. Um, but we're going to ask some questions now. So we, do we have a couple of minutes for questions? Okay, and don't be intimidated about asking a question because it's okay. I've already been asked the best possible question I could ever be asked. Dear Oliver Jeffers, what is your name? (laughs) And while I'm answering questions, let's look at this illustration of the inside of my head. Okay, who has the microphone? Does anybody have a microphone yet? I'll do this. Okay. Does anybody have a question? Put your hand up if you've got a question. There we go. And then if you want to get another question lined up over here. So My question is, who inspires you Who's talking? as an artist? Oh, hello. Uh, who inspires me as an artist? You mean other artists? Yes, other artists. I mean, it's not just limited to other artists. It's... it's uh, Actors, novelists, painters, uh, even the way that, that somebody dresses for work. So it, it's, it's, it's not limited to just other artists, but other artists I admire. Um, you mean in, in picture book terms or in fine art terms? Just any, That's any a really terms. varying wide okay, question. Okay, let's go picture book. Uh, uh, picture, picture book artists, okay. Yeah. Contemporary or, or previous? <laughs> 1960 on. 1960 <laughs> on. Okay, well, that's, that's pretty long. I've, I've already said Quentin Blake is, was a huge uh, influence on me growing up. Um, the Eric Carter Morris Sendak, of course, and then Tommy Unger, who's thankfully making a resurgence these days. Um, and then uh, of, of my uh, age range, I think uh, there's some brilliant talent coming out of um, Ireland. There's Chris Houghton, who also won an award today, very deservedly so. He's a, a hugely talented individual. Uh, another Dublin fella called Kevin Waldron, who, uh, whose work I love um, dearly. Um, then some other people like... Uh, John Klassen, who I mentioned as well, and then Serge Block, I think, is, is fantastic. Uh, I could keep going. Do we just go, is that enough? That's, or? that's good. That's okay, good. okay, sorry. Good yeah. top five. Thank you. Um, all right. Do we, who's got another question? We have a next question just in here. Okay, yep. Yeah. Who's Rory? Who's Rory? Say it again. Who's Rory? Who's Rory? Rory is my big brother. <laughs> yeah, and he used to do big brother things to me. Like he, I got a, 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 a managed to get the... the Nicest looking girl in my class to go out on a date with me. And my big brother hid every one of my left shoes, apart from <laughs> my dodgiest pair of trainers. Love big brothers. He designed the alphabet book. So let's give him a round of applause because he won in the world series. So, yes. Uh, yes, that's who he is. Okay, who's next? Okay. Um, with your first book, how did you go approaching... Uh, places to publish it? How I went about getting uh, places to publish it, I did about uh, two or three different things. Actually, if on my FAQ page on my website, there's a whole essay I've written about this, but very briefly, I looked at the other types of books that I thought my books would, would sit well beside, and then um, looked who published them. Then I bought a book called The Writer's and Artist's Yearbook, 
Uh, and these days, there's now a, a specific one for children's writers and artists. So there's the Children's Writers and Artists Yearbook, which gives you all the contact details for the, the publishers and the addresses and whatnot. And then I just sent a letter with, with my ideas, um, a little portfolio, and I put a lot of care into how it was presented. Because, you know, whoever said you'd never judge a book by their cover was lying. You do. <laughs> we all do every day. So put care into your presentation if that's something that you're going to think of. But the, the research, the information's out there. You just gotta, there's, no, there's no shortcut for hard work. You've got to put the, the effort in. Okay, who's next? Okay. Um, the industry itself, um, the children's picture book industry, seems really um, okay. competitive, um, which kind of can be intimidating for, for an illustrator. Just wondering, would you have any comment on that? Competitive is one way to look at it. I think it's, uh, it's the a golden age of picture books. I just think when I started out, um, I think there were not very many good picture books being made at that point. And that was sort of like the late 1990s. I was looking around and I went to the Bologna Book Fair and the exhibitions of the, late, the, the mid to late 90s were just terrible. So that, w- that was very frustrating for me because um, like this, this is such a much more interesting platform than this. So yes, competitive is one way to look at it, but... Being part of, of an age when picture books are better than they've ever been is another way of looking at it. And that's easy for me to say because I managed to cut my teeth before I got really good. Um, so the, the competitive nature of it is not something that really ever bothered me. And it's also never why I wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it because, you know, I was pitting myself against other people or wanted to win awards or sell many copies. I mean, that's the inside of my head. That's, I just had to, really. So, yeah, do it because you love it. All right, who's got the microphone next? Okay, sorry up in the balcony. I'm going to ask one of you to yell a question at the very end. Okay. Uh, how do you, like, do you just, you, do you just use your imagination to get into, do the book, to write the books? Yes. I also use my imagination to do my accounts too. <laughs> which uh, <laughs> requires some stitching up afterwards. Um, yeah. You know, just I. Okay, hands up, hands up here. Who's below the age of ten? Few people. Do you, do you draw pictures and tell stories? Hands up. Who draws pictures and tells stories? Are they true stories? Pretty much what I do. I just never stop doing it. So I use my imagination all the time. Yeah. Who's next? Do you just want to take one from the balcony? Yes, I do want to take one from the balcony. Who's going to yell? Yes, you with your hand up right there. (laughs) (laughs) I I was a paper boy once, uh, and then I made a really bad decision one morning where um, my favorite part of the round was like I was on my bike and went downhill, and that was always my favorite part because I could just zip down. And there was these lads that used to, I used to see them every morning. They were, they were um, wa- uh, uh, walking greyhounds, like racing dogs. Uh, and this time around, I saw them halfway down the hill. I was like, I'm just going to scoot past them. Of course, a greyhound is trained to chase after something that scoots past it. So I got mowed down by a pursuing greyhound. And that was the end of me and being a paperboy. And then I once had a job in Waterstones in Belfast, uh, where I got away with just doing the shop windows and not dealing with the public at all. Uh, and that was while I was in, in our college. And then I left that job to put the, the final push into uh, the 
last semester and the, the book and everything. And, and it was right around then that, that I thought that I might possibly be unemployable. And so that was the last proper job I had. Okay, who else? Do we, who's got the microphone? How are we doing on time? Um, I think we might just take one more question. One more sorry. question. Okay, who's the lucky last person? Who's got their hand in the air? Who's got their hand in the air? We've got one right over Do there. You have had your hand in the air. Are you ever going to write an autobiography? They're kind of all autobiographies, really. Um, yeah, maybe one day. Never really thought about that before. Hang on, let me take a note of that. <laughs> um, possibly. That was a very short question, so let's squeeze one more and let's get this kid right here. Does a boy go in, in, is in a car going round and round on Saturn's rings? Are they, what was the question? Are they, who are they? Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Huh? Who is the little boy? Who's in the car? Oh, who's in the car? Well, obviously that's Roger and Dodger. I have no idea. They look like they're having a really good time. I could watch this all night. <laughs> round and around they go. They never get bored. Anyway, sorry, yes. Um, I have no idea who they are. Two people having a really good time, obviously. Uh, all right, I think that's all we have time for. So I believe I'm going to be signing books outside. Thank you. Thank you.